words of a New Testament that God wants written. What do you write? Well, maybe you begin your book by writing uh, some sort of lofty, eloquent description of God and his attributes, uh, straining to find language that would be suitable, high enough to articulate your theology. That might be good. Or maybe you begin your book with a rich, soaring description of the spiritual realities of living in a material world. Maybe that would be good. Or, if you're like the person who was actually tasked with writing the first words of the New Testament, maybe you begin with a genealogy. A genealogy of all the things to kick off the New Testament, a genealogy. Working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew began his book and hence began the entire New Testament with a genealogy, with a written list of the names of flesh and blood people, a list that is purposed to show kinship relationships. Now, let's just come out and admit it. Let's get this kind of out in the open here. For the vast majority of us, our eyes kind of glaze over and our brains turn off when we read the genealogies in the Bible. Somebody say amen, it's okay. (laughs) God understands. But if you're like me, oftentimes you sort of endure the genealogies, not giving them really your full attention because you want to get to the good stuff, right? Uh, In Matthew's gospel, most of us want to skip the first 17 verses or or just kind of go over them really quickly and get to Matthew 1.18 where the narrative of the birth of Jesus begins, the Christmas story. It just seems so tedious to us and, and even awkward Uh, to kick off the New Testament in this way, with a genealogy. But what I want to try to show us over these next few weeks of Advent is the importance of Matthew's genealogy, the artistry of Matthew's genealogy, the glory that is embedded in this genealogy, and the relevance of this genealogy for you and I. I want us even to get excited (laughs) about this genealogy. Do you think that's possible? Let's get excited about this genealogy. That's part of the plan over these weeks leading to Christmas. Now, to begin our journey, I want you to come with me over to 1 Timothy 1, uh, verses 3 and 4. So in this chapter of 1 Timothy, this is the Apostle Paul writing, and he is instructing here his young pastoral protege, Timothy, instructing him on matters related to the pastorate. And one of the things that Paul instructs Timothy to do in verse 4 of that chapter, it's very interesting, he instructs Timothy to tell certain people in the church to stop it with their endless genealogies. Endless genealogies. People in this first century church were engaged in endless genealogies. And that comment of Paul reflects the fact 
that genealogies in the first century context were a very popular pastime. And so instead of pulling out a board game after supper, like the ancient Near Eastern version of Monopoly or Pictionary, or instead of playing uh, PS4, if they had it back then, um, people in this ancient culture, instead of that, they would say, hey, supper's over, let's pull out that genealogy and let's work on that genealogy a bit more. To the people in this first century culture, genealogies were exciting. Everybody was doing them. Endless genealogies. And genealogies were important in this culture. They served several important functions. Now, in our day, um, if we sign up to do some genealogical work, say on Ancestry.com or one of the other sites, it's normally, we do that normally for private reasons, right? We want to see where we ourselves came from and who our ancestors are. What is our family tree? But in the ancient Near East, genealogies had much more of a public significance, a public significance. Genealogies showed not only kinship biological links, they also helped in solving territorial disputes. They were also helpful in assessing economic allegiances and political links. In fact, in the time when Matthew wrote his gospel, if you visited the home of a Roman senator, normally you would see a genealogy of that senator posted in plain view outside the door to his home. The genealogy would be posted there, showing his lineage as a Roman senator. Genealogies were also helpful in terms of locating, locating a given family uh, geographically in terms of their agricultural practices. And they also helped in the process sometimes of assessing eligibility for military conscription. Genealogies were super important in this ancient Near Eastern culture for a number of reasons. So perhaps now we can start to see why God decided that Matthew should begin the New Testament with a genealogy. It makes sense for a number of reasons, and we also have to bear in mind as we read the Gospel of Matthew that his primary audience was a Jewish audience. Matthew knew how important genealogies were within the Jewish community, and so he begins his gospel in this way. Contrast that with the gospel writer Luke, whose audience was primarily made up of Gentiles, and for that reason, we don't get Luke's genealogy until late in chapter 3 of his gospel. But Matthew, with an eye primarily toward his Jewish audience, begins in this way with this genealogy. Now, friends, we're soon going to venture into the genealogy itself. I'm sure you are on the edge of your seat already and very excited about this. Um, but honestly, I hope that you will be by the, by the time this Advent series is done. This genealogy is all about the coming of the Savior, and thus it is a fitting study for our Advent sermon series. But just before we get there, I want to just quickly say a couple more things as, as a lead-in. So the first is to say 
that this genealogy in Matthew, we need to understand and see, that it represents both a termination and a beginning. A termination and a beginning. Jesus himself is the termination of a carefully cataloged lineage that started with Abraham. Jesus is the end point of that whole long lineage. Jesus is the goal and he is the, the arrival point of the lineage that started with Abraham. What we notice in the New Testament is that aside from the two genealogies that we have in Matthew and Luke, which both center on Jesus, there are no more genealogies because none are needed. With Jesus, we have arrived at the whole reason for keeping genealogical records in the family of Abraham. Jesus is the termination point of the whole thing. And also, along with being the termination, Jesus himself is also the beginning, isn't he, of something brand new. Jesus brings new creation. God's kingdom comes near in the advent, in the incarnation of Jesus. He is God's new beginning, as well as being the termination point of Abraham's lineage. He is a termination and he is the beginning. And then the second thing to notice very carefully as we look at the genealogy that Matthew gives us is that Matthew, in beginning the New Testament, begins with what? With the Old Testament story. In the genealogy, right off the bat, he's alluding to old, the Old Testament stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, etc., and he's linking all of it very explicitly to who? To Jesus and to the birth of Jesus. Why does he begin in this way? Well, as Graham Goldsworthy explains it, the reason is that Matthew wants to make it crystal clear for us, his readers, that, quote, on the one hand, we should never try to understand the New Testament apart from the Old, and on the other hand, we will not understand the Old Testament without its fulfillment in Christ. Amen? Matthew wants us to understand one more time. On the one hand, we should never try to understand the New Testament apart from the Old. And on the other hand, we will not understand the Old Testament without its fulfillment in Christ. The Bible, as we have said so many times from this pulpit and from teaching in the church, the Bible is an organic whole. We best not separate Old Testament and New Testament for too long or we'll get into all sorts of problems and trouble. All right, so now that we are all excited, we're sitting on the edge of our seats with regard to this genealogy, we're gonna venture into it now. The first two words of the New Testament are the Greek words, biblos geneseos. Biblos Geneseos, which the English Standard Version has translated, the book of the genealogy. The two Greek words here can also be rendered as something like the book of origins. And many have argued that with these two words, Matthew is alluding already to another book of origins, the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. 
It could very well be, as Matthew begins his gospel with these two particular Greek words specifically chosen, that he wants us to think back to the original creation in Genesis with Adam, with Eve, the garden, but now with the coming of Jesus that Matthew is going to go on to describe in his gospel, there is a new creation moment afoot. Jesus brings the new creation, amen, the new creation that one day will overtake the old age and we won't have any more problems with COVID or climate change or any of the things that are constantly in the news today. Jesus brings the new creation as God in the flesh come to earth, he brings the renewal of all things, amen? Matthew's book is a book describing new origins, new creation. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus is his everyday name, his given name, and Christ is his title. Christ means anointed one, Messiah. The title Christ in this first verse of Matthew's gospel is like fireworks going off, complete with a parade and a victory celebration. The Christ, the Messiah, is here, and he is this Jesus of Nazareth. He comes from Nazareth of all places. He's come into the world, The long-promised Christ, the long-promised Messiah of God has finally arrived. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew takes us directly to which testament? To the Old Testament in this first verse of the New Testament. Now, notice something here that Charles Quarles has pointed out in his work. It's very interesting. We notice that once we get into the genealogy proper, which will start in verse 2, Matthew is going to proceed in chronological order of the characters. So he'll go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and so on and so forth. But here in verse 1, things are not in chronological order because here David, notice, comes prior to Abraham. Something we have to notice. David is mentioned first, before Abraham, even though David was born way later than Abraham. So that in the first verse, Matthew is purposely, we need to notice, purposely putting David in the position of prominence over even Abraham. Why? Because Matthew wants especially in his genealogy to show David's link to Jesus and Jesus' link to David. David is especially important in Matthew's genealogy, and so David is named here first before Abraham. Jesus is identified here as son of David. Now, as Matthew's gospel progresses, Jesus will be called son of David another eight times. It was important for Matthew to identify Jesus as son of David. Why? Because to David it had been promised, we remember, 
that his throne would last how long? Forever. To David was promised that God's covenant love would never leave the house of David. That a descendant of David would sit on the eternal throne. But now since the time of the exile to Babylon, the tree that had been the house of David had become a stump. But now, with this identification of Jesus here as son of David in this first verse of the New Testament, there is a glorious indication we need to see that in the person of Jesus, we have the promised green branch that is growing out of the stump. A new royal branch is manifesting itself, is growing out of the Davidic stump after all those centuries of nothing. Now, to show you just how important David is to this genealogy of Matthews, I want us to consider this for a moment. And I encourage you to follow me here, because this is a little tricky, but it's very rewarding once we, once we see it. It actually causes us to stand back in awe at the genius of Matthew and the Lord who is inspiring Matthew to write. So, I'll start this way. <clears throat> When I was a kid, um, sometimes I'd create a secret code, maybe you did this too, a secret code that only I and another friend knew about to communicate with each other. So for example, uh, we'd take the alphabet and we would assign numbers to each letter. So for example, A became, say, the number seven, B became the number 24, C was the number nine, and so on and so forth. And then we would write messages to each other with the numbers that we would use our system to decode <laughs> afterwards. Well, the Hebrew authors did something actually very similar, except it wasn't so secret. So in their system, numbers were assigned to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is a very common Hebrew device that they used. So the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet had one as its numerical value. The second letter of the Hebrew alphabet had two as its numerical value, and so on and so forth. For our purposes this morning, it's important to understand that the name David in Hebrew, it's only three letters in Hebrew, as opposed to being five letters in English, the three letters of the Hebrew name David have numerical values of four, six, and four, totaling 14. And here's where things get really interesting. Matthew has arranged his genealogy in three groups of 14 names each. So group one, Abraham to David. Group two, Solomon to Jeconiah. 14 names. Group three, Jeconiah to Jesus, 14 names. And the 14th name in the entire genealogy, the name that is given in verse six, is none other than the name David with its numerical value of 14. So it's very clear in all of this that David is the key to this entire Genealogy, Matthew's main goal in this genealogy is to show the link from Jesus back to David and from David forward to Jesus. But of course, 
we can't leave Abraham out, can we? Because in verse 1, he's also, Jesus is also called the son of Abraham. Well, who's Abraham? Abraham is the founding father of the nation of Israel. Uh, it was through the family of Abraham, in other words, through the, through the nation of, of Israel, that God purposed to bring salvation to the world of nations. Through Abraham's family would come God's blessings to the nations. Look around you right now. We see the nations. God's blessing to the nations comes through the family of Abraham. Jesus is son of Abraham. Jesus comes in the lineage of Abraham. Jesus, in the words of Chris Wright, is the completion of all that Israel had been put in the, into the world for, namely, God's self-revelation and his work of human redemption. You and I, are redeemed by the one who comes in Abraham's lineage. As those in union with the Redeemer Jesus, are you in union with him today? Are you a believer? If so, according to Galatians 3.29, you are Abraham's offspring. Abraham's offspring, even if you are a Gentile. So friends, Abraham's story, see this, the story that Matthew gives us in his genealogy, which begins with Abraham, this is really our story, amen? It is our story. Matthew is telling us about our people, about our family of faith in this genealogy, and so we should get excited about this genealogy. It turns out it's more meaningful to us than we thought it was. Now, the story itself, the genealogy itself, begins in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So the Monopoly game, the PS4 game, has started here for the ancients. They're right into this. So, so far in this opening statement of the genealogy, Matthew has taken us to the book of Genesis, right? The book of Genesis, where the stories of all the individuals that he names here are in the book. But notice something here. Who is the only son of Jacob who is mentioned in this verse? Judah, right? Judah, out of Jacob's 12 sons, he's the only one that gets named. But why does Judah get special attention here over Joseph, Simeon, uh, Benjamin, the rest of the sons of Jacob? Because to Judah and his tribe, it had been promised that the royal line in Israel would emerge, the line that would lead to David and then eventually to Jesus. Matthew continues with Judah in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, the twins, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And then let's read the remainder of our preaching passage, verses 4 uh, through the first part of verse 6. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, 
and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. (laughs) And thus ends the first of the three sections of Matthew's genealogy, each made up of 14 links, 14 key names, the 14th name in the genealogy being the name of David. Now, do notice in the verses we just read that we have Matthew mentioning several women in the midst of all the men. We need to understand that it was unusual for the names of women to appear in Jewish genealogies. But in his genealogy, Matthew includes the names Tamar, verse 3, Rahab, verse 5, Ruth, verse 5, and then a little later, he indirectly mentions Bathsheba in verse 6, and then finally, Mary. Yes, at the close of the genealogy, verse 16. So five women are mentioned here. What's Matthew doing as he mentions all these women in his genealogy? Well, a couple of things, I think, a couple of things. The first is this. In John chapter 8, Jesus is involved there in a rather animated conversation with some Jewish leaders, John 8, and in verses 41 and 48 of that chapter, these leaders imply that Jesus was born out of a sexually immoral relationship that his mother Mary allegedly engaged in. What those leaders say in those verses reflects the fact that there was this suspicion amongst some people in the day that Jesus had been an illegitimate child. In fact, in the Jewish Mishnah, there is an allegation that Jesus was born out of the union of Mary with a Roman soldier. And so there was this slanderous allegation in the air in the time of Matthew. Of course, before Matthew chapter 1 is done, Matthew will go out of his way to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that that allegation of illegitimacy is entirely false. But for now, just focus with me on that fact that there had, the, there had been this suspicion Amongst some, that Jesus had been born in illegitimacy. Well, when Matthew, in his genealogy, mentions Tamar, Tamar, who had secretly planned and executed a sexual relationship with her father-in-law, Judah, that produced the twins Perez and Zerah, when he mentions Tamar, and in verse 5 of his genealogy, when he mentions Rahab, Rahab the Canaanite prostitute, whose union with Salmon had produced Boaz. And when Matthew, in verse 5 of his genealogy, mentions Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, the non-Israelite, who had descended from Lot, 
with his incestuous relationship with his eldest daughter. And when Matthew in verse 6 mentions the wife of Uriah, who we know was Bathsheba, Bathsheba who had been involved in an adulterous relationship with David, the two of them later producing Solomon, what's Matthew doing? Matthew is shouting in this genealogy, through this genealogy, to any Jewish person who would want to point a finger and charge Mary with giving birth to an illegitimate child. He is shouting through the genealogy, look at your own history. (laughs) There are more than enough births that we can talk about along the path of Jewish history that were plainly, listen, plainly, unconventional. Births that came through people like Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab, God oversaw all of these unconventional births throughout the history. Now guess what? God has gone ahead and he has orchestrated another unconventional birth But it's not what you allegers think it is. It's unconventional in another way. It's the most unconventional birth of them all, the birth of the baby Jesus conceived in Mary from the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing I think Matthew is doing with the mention, this particular list of women in his genealogy. He's alluding to all these many unconventional births in the history of Israel that lead to this, the most unconventional birth of them all, the birth of Jesus. The second thing that I think he's doing is this, and it's perhaps even more important than the first thing. And here I'm indebted especially to uh, Bruno Compton, I have to give credit where credit's due, Bruno Compton McFadden in their recent book, Biblical Theology According to the Apostles. Uh, I do that because there's a lot of pulpit plagiarism and I try my best not to be a pulpit plagiarizer. So this is coming from them. Listen, in his genealogy, Matthew mentions Tamar. Okay, let's think about Tamar again in verse 3. We can certainly question Tamar's actions in Genesis 38, uh, tricking her father-in-law into the sexual relationship as she did. But as we read Genesis 38, the pressing issue that emerges in the story is that Judah's lineage may end if something doesn't happen. The royal lineage that would lead to David and eventually to Jesus had fallen into real jeopardy in Genesis 38. But through Tamar and Judah's questionable actions came the twins, Perez and Zerah, meaning that the royal lineage that had begun with Abraham continued. So that this presumably Canaanite woman, we're pretty sure that Tamar's Canaanite, she does this very unconventional thing and what's the result? It actually ends up rescuing and preserving the line of promise when that line had fallen into serious jeopardy. She is a rescuer. Well, what about Matthew's mention of Rahab in verse 5? 
Rahab was the one who had provided protection for the Israelite spies, right? In that very critical moment when Israel was just on the cusp of entering the land that God had promised in the covenant to Abraham. Rahab the Canaanite prostitute played a major role in the preservation of the promise, in the preservation of Israel itself. And Rahab's son just happened to be who? Boaz. Boaz, through whom came David. So Rahab, like Tamar, had also acted in a way that rescued the line of promise. And then, of course, Matthew mentions Ruth in verse 5. Ruth, the Moabitess, another Gentile, whose godly kindness, chesed, whose godly initiative in securing Boaz as her husband ended up producing Obed, and just a few, couple generations later came David through that lineage. Again, in Ruth's moment in history, the royal lineage had been threatened. But Ruth played a major role in the rescue, in the preservation of the lineage. So that with the mention of these three women in particular, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, Matthew in his genealogy is pointing to these three Gentile women who in their own ways were rescuers, get that, of God's people. And guess where this this family tree terminates? It terminates in Jesus Christ, the ultimate rescuer whom God sent in the flesh into our world. The rescuer Jesus comes through a lineage of rescuers. Are you getting excited now about this genealogy? Even just a little bit, I hope so. Now we're going to work this toward a close. So in the final verse of our passage this morning, Matthew includes the word king in reference to David. David the king is the phrase he uses. In the time when Matthew wrote these words, it had been hundreds of years since the last king in David's lineage had occupied the throne in Israel. The Babylonian exile had seemingly put an end to the lineage of Davidic kings. But now, says Matthew, there had arisen this son of David, this sprouting branch out of the stump, this new anointed one whose lineage could be traced all the way back through David, back to Abraham. A new king in the line of David. But as David's program, David's program had been to save God's people from the Philistines, the program of this new son of David, the the program of the greater David, would be very different. See, many people in the time of Matthew, as he's writing this, many people in that time would have expected that this new son of David would come and save Israel from the Romans who were occupying the land in the same way that David had saved Israel from the Philistines. See, the program of Jesus was going to be very different. His program is expressed very clearly by the angel of the Lord in Matthew 121, 
Jesus came in order to save his people, not from the Romans, but from something far greater, from their sins. His ancestors, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, had been rescuers. Now Jesus arrived to rescue people, to save people like you and I, from our sins. Yes, indeed. He was born in Bethlehem, Christmas, to die, Good Friday, on the cross of Calvary as the sacrificial substitute. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the cross, what, it, what was Jesus doing? He was substituting himself for sinners, paying the penalty for the sins of his people who were helpless to rescue themselves. Rescue from what? Rescue from the wrath of God that is coming on all sin. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, friends, our hearts sing, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Hail in the time appointed, his reign on earth begun. He comes to break oppression, to set the captive free, to take away transgression and rule in equity. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Now what we have seen this morning in these opening verses of the genealogy is the patient, long-haul way that God brought into the world Jesus to rescue us, to provide for us the greatest need of our entire existence. Our faith, our salvation, our life in the Spirit comes by Jesus who was born by Mary and Joseph, whose lineage goes all the way back to the founding father of Israel, Abraham. We are connected in this genealogy, really connected. As Gentile believers, we are ultimately the offspring of Abraham because of faith in Jesus. Well, what's the application this morning? The application is simply this, to make a pointed, listen, concerted, resolute effort this week and I mean, mark time off in your calendar. Set an alarm on your phone if that helps you. Seriously do this. Go to God in prayer on your knees and express your thanksgiving and express your wonder that you are a person of faith who belongs to this family of God. My believing Christian brother or sister how many miraculous things, think about this, how many miraculous things have had to happen, say, over the past 2,000 years, how many astoundingly intricate details have had to be arranged and be put in place and take place so that you were brought into this world by the design of God only to be born a second time as a person of faith, now finding yourself, hallelujah, connected to Jesus and through Jesus all the way back to David and Abraham. 
God is astounding, is he not? He wanted you here, yes he did, for this little blip in history that you are presently inhabiting. He purposed that you would come to know Jesus. And so please, spend quality time. Don't forget, spend quality time with him this week in wonder, in awe, in worship, and in great gratitude for your life and your faith and your connection to the ancient and modern family of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. You are great and you are wonderful, counselor, mighty God, the Prince of Peace, all the things that you are called in Scripture. We praise you. We adore you. We thank you for sending your Son to be the Savior, to be Lord of our lives, to set us free so that we can be uh, people who are obeying you and working into the calling that you have put on our lives. Lord, it is a blessing <laughs> beyond words to be part of your family. Lord, I pray for each one here that we would go into this week full of praise, full of joy, full of wonder and awe. In Jesus' name, amen.